Hey guys, I'm Chastity, and this is the Ancient Conspiracies Podcast. Unless we understand Genesis 6, in my opinion, it's almost impossible to understand the rest of Scripture. We go back to Genesis 6 and we read, The sons of God saw the daughters of men, and they desired them, and, and married whomever they chose. And giants were born, and Nephilim were on the earth, and also afterwards. And from that unholy union came the flood. These were the watchers who governed the physical world before the flood. They were supposed to be helping humankind, but when they rebel, they commit these violations against the laws of creation. Very powerful angels came down and they mingled with humans. So there was a saturation, an intermarriage between angels and humans, and then through intermarriage, this was spreading uh, over hundreds of years until finally, by the time we reach Noah, he's the last specimen left that has a genetic makeup, his DNA, as God had made it. If you asked a Jew, hey, why is the world the mess that it is? Why is human depravity so bad? They would say the real impact is the sin of the watchers. Because when the watchers sin like this, they also teach humanity lots of things that corrupt humanity. Every major ancient civilization has a similar narrative of the gods, uh, these entities, these beings descending from heaven and commingling with the human race, taking from among the children of men why, and producing, as a result, offspring that were not fully human and were not fully of the gods. These were the demigods, and in many cases giants, but not just giants, all kinds of beasts and, and, and creatures that came into existence that were not sanctioned by God. They were not sanctioned to exist, so they were wholly evil. Well, welcome to season two. I hope you all had a relaxing summer and are ready to plunge head first into the book of Enoch. We're actually going to try to get all the way through chapter five today. And keep in mind that these chapters, in some cases, are more like paragraphs. Some are incredibly short. But before we dive into the book itself, there's a lot of speculation about whether this is something that Christians should even study. In fact, I had a gentleman message me over the summer to ask this very question. Question, because he was concerned that the book of Enoch glorifies angels, which at first glance, it could appear that way. But I replied that rather than glorifying angels, it instead exposes how angels once glorified themselves. And this history is found in more places than just the book of Enoch. And I just want to preface today's episode, and actually this entire study, by making you aware that there is a ton of information and perspectives out there on the Book of Enoch. So there will inevitably be things that potentially get overlooked or may get left out of this study. In the study that I'm presenting, I plan to stay fairly rooted in the commentary offered by Pastor J.R. Church, who was the founder of Prophecy in the News magazine. In fact, I've shared a copy of his commentary in the PDF library on my website. I'll also be referencing the companion to the Book of Enoch by Dr. Michael Heiser, who passed away earlier this year, but he was a phenomenal Old Testament scholar and Christian author with training in ancient history, Semitic languages, and the translation of the Hebrew Bible. He was also the founder of the Naked Bible Podcast. Now, my goal in presenting this study is to 
simply give you an overview, an understanding, and to shine some light on the content so that you can absorb it easier and begin seeing hints to this history as you do your own personal Bible studies. And I want to make it clear, and those of you familiar with my podcast already know this, that I try to stay very rooted in Scripture. Although we talk about controversial topics, it's always been of the utmost importance to me to remain grounded in the Word. I've always said that in a world full of conspiracy theories, Scripture is the anchor, the tether that keeps us grounded to truth and holds us accountable for the information that we share. It's easy to get carried away in the conspiracy realm and forget to check your theories against the Word of God. So with that out of the way, let's talk about why this book is applicable to Christians, starting with a little back history. Almost every civilization on earth has in its ancient past stories of sky gods who came to earth and gifted mankind with knowledge. Interestingly, many of these gods were portrayed as serpents. The Aztecs called their snake god Quetzalcoatl. The Chinese depicted them as flying dragons. In the 3,000-year-old Sumerian tablets, they were called the Anunnaki. In Mesopotamia, they were the Abkalu. In ancient Sanskrit epics and Hindu texts, they arrived in flying chariots called Vimanas. The Native Americans called them the Napi, and the Navajo even have ancient stories of a serpent being who arrived through a swirling portal and deceived mankind into practicing witchcraft, which ultimately led to cannibalism and the extinction of their ancestors, the Anasazi Indians. In the Four Corners area of the United States, these earliest stories of creation are depicted directly on the petroglyphs. And petroglyphs from all around the globe also verify these written accounts of beings arriving in unusual crafts from the stars. And while this history may seem insignificant because it's ancient and a little far-fetched, it's quickly making a comeback, and these stories have been revived in recent decades through popular television shows like Ancient Aliens on the History Channel. Ancient Aliens got its start by introducing the writings of Eric Von Daniken, a Swiss author who wrote a groundbreaking book in 1968 called Chariots of the Gods. In his book, he shared about these stories of the sky gods who visited mankind in the ancient past. He, too, claims that they gifted us advanced technology and then they genetically altered us. In fact, he went so far as to claim that we may even be descendants of them. Combine that with a similar theory by Zechariah Sitchin, who wrote about the Sumerian Anunnaki gods in his popular book, The Twelfth Planet. And together, this history birthed the term the Ancient Astronaut Theory, which was coined by the show Ancient Aliens. It's the idea that aliens, non-human entities, visited our planet in the ancient past and genetically altered us from apes to create Homo sapiens. And then for whatever reason, they left, but they will eventually return and claim their rightful position as our creators. Now, if we line this up with the recent disclosure of actual alien life, 
you begin to see the emergence of a perfect recipe for the great deception. In fact, I read an article on Fox News just last week where a Harvard physicist was claiming that people are going to view future alien intelligence like God. And in episode 21, I went into great detail about how the Catholic Church is already prepping the body of Christ to receive a different version of history from extraterrestrials that will challenge the biblical narrative. And what makes this worse is that those in Christian leadership don't seem to be questioning this narrative because they're too busy preaching a prosperity gospel and offering motivational TED Talks rather than paying attention to the subtle changes that are currently being implemented, which are going to radically alter the vast majority's view of biblical events. And that's where my podcast comes in. I tend to believe that the revival of this ancient information and the ultimate disclosure of extraterrestrial life was not only prophesied in our Bible, but it confirms a biblical history that many people aren't even aware exists. In fact, the same history that is spoken of in all ancient civilizations around the globe is also found in the Bible. If you remember from Genesis 3, after the serpent deceives Eve in the Garden of Eden, God curses the serpent and tells him, quote, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and hers, unquote. Now, the serpent is typically understood to be Satan, who was an angel. Have you ever wondered what the seed of the serpent could have been? Could angels have offspring? Well, according to the book of Enoch, the answer is yes. In Genesis chapter 6, we're told that in the days of Noah, the sons of God came to the daughters of man and had children with them. According to the book of Enoch, these hybrid offspring were giants, which not only explains where the giants came from who were found throughout the Old Testament, but it's the same account given in Greek mythology of the gods and the demigods. In fact, the first generation of giants in Greek mythology were the Titans, who went on to be imprisoned in Tartarus, the exact location where Peter claims the fallen angels were imprisoned in the Bible. Not only that, but if you take into consideration that some of these angels may have been seraphim, the root word seraph literally translates fiery serpent, which confirms the serpent and dragon gods described in the histories of numerous ancient civilizations. Now, the book of Enoch goes on to say that not only did the fallen angels mate with the women of earth and produce offspring, which is why Eric von Daniken believed that we were descendants of them, but it also claims that they taught mankind a corrupt version of heavenly knowledge, what might be considered today advanced technology. And they taught witchcraft, just like the Navajo legends claim. They were also said to have promoted themselves as our gods and or creators, exactly what is shared in the Sumerian history. And according to the book of Enoch, this complete and utter corruption of genetics and knowledge that brought with it such wickedness to planet Earth 
is the real reason why God brought the flood of Noah. And this is why the book of Enoch is relevant for believers, because it offers a back history to Genesis 6. The account in Genesis is only a few sentences of an overall history, which the author presumes that you're familiar with. I love how Dr. Michael Heiser says it. He says that the Bible may have been written for us, but it wasn't written to us. We are cultural outsiders to the information that the writers were referencing under the assumption that we were familiar with it. But we are 2,000 years removed from that knowledge. And a perfect example of this is something else that Dr. Heiser shared, which I added a clip of in the trailer of this season. He says, if you ask a Christian why the world is such a mess and why there's so much depravity in the world, more than likely they will say the fall with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. But if you were to ask this question to a second temple Jew, they might agree, but they would also add that the real culprits are the watchers because the watchers taught humanity all sorts of things that ultimately corrupted humanity. And therefore, the book of Enoch at its core is an apocalyptic literature that serves a purpose similar to the book of Revelation. Whereas Revelation deals with the reversal of the separation of man from God, the book of Enoch deals with the reversal of the depravity of humanity. In the Garden of Eden, we were doomed to an eternity without God. Man was separated from God. In the book of Revelation, we are reunited with God. In the same way that in the days of Noah, corrupt knowledge was introduced from which depravity spread. And in the book of Enoch, God destroys those who introduced it and restores righteousness to the earth. Both Revelation and the book of Enoch point to the same apocalyptic end times. But the book of Enoch was written almost 300 years before John wrote the book of Revelation, which is absolutely incredible. Now, before we go further, I want to offer a brief summary of who Enoch is. For those who may not be familiar, Enoch was seven generations from Adam, and he was the great-grandfather of Noah. We're told in Genesis 5 that Enoch lived to be 365 years old. We're also told that Enoch walked faithfully with God, and then he was raptured. In fact, he's one of only two people in all the Bible to have ever been raptured. And this is confirmed in Hebrews chapter 11, where we're told, quote, By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God, unquote. Now, it's been widely speculated whether Enoch actually wrote the book of Enoch himself. In earlier episodes, we surmised based on early Christian scholars that he may have written it and preserved it aboard the ark. 
But according to Dr. Michael Heiser, the Book of Enoch that we know today is a collection that was comprised of at least seven or eight separate authors. In fact, they categorized this book as part of a collection of literature, which they refer to as the Pseudepigrapha, which all came from the same time period. And these are basically books that were written or were titled based on the main character in the book, like a pseudonym. In the Bible, this would be similar to First and Second Samuel. There's nothing in the books of Samuel to say that Samuel personally wrote them, but that's what they became known as because he's the central character. And this seems to be the case with the book of Enoch as well. And these pseudepigraphal writings came from the time period of the Second Temple, what's known as the Intertestamental Period, the period of history between the Old Testament and the New Testament. In fact, the book of Enoch has been dated to the 3rd century BC based on the fragments of it which were found among the Dead Sea Scrolls at Qumran. Now, I need to pause here and clarify that there are actually three different books of Enoch. So when I reference the, quote, book of Enoch, I'm actually referring to first Enoch, the first book specifically. The second and third books differ from the first book in both context and language. In fact, they're believed to have been written after the death of Christ. So we will not be studying the second or third books of Enoch at all. We're going to solely focus on the oldest and most authentic of the books, the original. Now, with that being said, most of the books of Enoch, which are sold today, come from the Ethiopian translation. The Ethiopian Bible is considered the oldest and most complete Bible on earth. Nearly 800 years older than the King James Version, it contains between 81 and 88 books, compared to the 66 within the Protestant Bible. And among these additional books is the Book of Enoch. As we mentioned in episode two, the Book of Enoch was hidden for centuries. Now, scholars now believe that it was originally written in Aramaic based on its discovery among the Dead Sea Scrolls. Aramaic was the common language among the ancient Hebrews. Scholars also believe that around the turn of the millennium, it was translated into Greek, and then from Greek, it was translated into Ge'ez, the Ethiopian language, in the 5th or 6th century, where it has remained in the Ethiopian Bible ever since. So the Ethiopian Bible, for more than a thousand years, carried the oldest transcripts of the Book of Enoch until fragments of the book were found in the Dead Sea Scrolls between 1947 and 1956. So to this day, the Ethiopian version is still the most complete version of the Book of Enoch in existence, which is why it's the version sold in stores. But the oldest version in existence comes from the fragments found within the Dead Sea Scrolls. And these fragments brought immense credibility to the Book of Enoch because it proved that there was an ancient sect of Jews who appeared to have considered it sacred enough to preserve it. As I mentioned in episode 19, it's widely believed that the Essenes, a deeply conservative Jewish sect, moved to the mountains during the period of the Roman Empire and potentially compiled the Dead Sea Scrolls to preserve their history. And what's interesting is that among the collection of documents found at Qumran, there were multiple copies of different texts that quote from the Book of Enoch. 
George W.E. Nicholsburg taught as a professor of religion at the University of Iowa for more than three decades. And during his tenure, he authored 70 articles and several hundred dictionary and encyclopedia entries, on top of authoring numerous books based on ancient Jewish literature. In his book titled First Enoch, the Hermenia Translation, he mentions a fragment of a Hebrew text found in Cave 1 at Qumran, which contained a story of the Watchers that was very similar to Enoch chapter 6. He also claims that there was a Pesher written about the story of the Watchers. Now, according to Dr. Michael Heiser, a Pesher is an interpretation, what we would call a commentary. And what makes this significant is that the Pesher texts found at Qumran typically comment on books specifically within the Hebrew Bible. So the fact that the Essenes would produce a Pesher text, a commentary about the Book of the Watchers, which is the portion of the Book of Enoch that talks about the fallen angels, suggests that first Enoch was highly regarded by them, if not considered scripture. In fact, it's well known that a handful of early Christian writers and early church fathers treated 1st Enoch as scripture. Not only that, but we know that it was widely circulated during the Second Temple period. Scholars even believe that it was likely read by Jesus, the apostles, and even other New Testament writers. And this can be proven by the fact that it was not only referenced, but also quoted directly in the New Testament. In Jude chapter 1, Jude, the brother of Jesus, quotes the book of Enoch directly. Jude chapter 1 verses 14 and 15 is practically an exact quote of Enoch chapter 1 verse 9. It's a prophecy of the return of Christ with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment and destroy the ungodly. And more interesting than that, in Jude chapter 1 verse 6, Jude speaks openly about the angels who, quote, did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their heavenly dwelling place, unquote. He went on to say that they were bound with everlasting chains in darkness awaiting judgment. Exactly what we're told happened to the fallen angels in the book of Enoch. And then we're told in 1 Peter chapter 3 that after his death, Christ went and visited these, quote, imprisoned spirits who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built, unquote, which points directly to the story of Genesis 6. Their disobedience led to their imprisonment and also to the flood of Noah. According to Dr. Michael Heiser, scholars agree that both Jude and Peter are talking about the same subject matter. They both describe a point in time when angels sinned, a sin that was sexual in nature. Jude even goes on to place this angelic sin in the same category of sins that took place in Sodom and Gomorrah. In fact, there's no other passage in the Old Testament which references any form of sexual angelic transgression except what's found in Genesis 6. And here's something that blew my mind. In his book, Reversing Hermon, Dr. Michael Heiser claims that the passage in Genesis 6, which references the sons of God mating with the daughters of man, 
was actually written as a theological polemic. Now, I had to Google this term because I'd never heard it before, but I quickly realized that it perfectly describes my podcast as well. It basically means to draw a distinction between true and false doctrine. It's a rebuttal, if you will, to set the record straight. And according to Dr. Heiser, the purpose of Genesis 6 being inserted into Scripture was to set the record straight. The Mesopotamians, the kingdom of Nimrod, had their own interpretation of pre- and post-flood events that had been widely circulated for centuries before the Torah was compiled. And in their historical accounts, they spoke about the Abkalu, which were divine pre-flood sages who gifted mankind with knowledge. They were essentially the equivalent of the fallen angels or the watchers in the book of Enoch. And the reason that the Genesis 6 passage exists is because the author was drawing a connection to a corrupt version of history that many were already familiar with, and he was making a subtle correction. He was setting the record straight without going through all the details that people already knew. It reminds me of a passage in 1 Thessalonians when Paul writes, you have no need for me to explain to you the dates and times, because you already know that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. It's the same concept. They had no need for him to explain the story again, because it was commonly and globally known, as is evident by the widespread pagan religions and idol worship that came from this Mesopotamian history. And here's the part that blew my mind. The content in Genesis 6 is not found anywhere else in the Old Testament, but it is found both in Mesopotamian writings from the same time period and in the New Testament. Therefore, according to Dr. Michael Heiser, the writer of First Enoch was not only familiar with the original Mesopotamian history, but they also knew that Genesis 6 was a response to it. Whoever wrote the book of Enoch knew the real backstory of Genesis 6 because there are things found in the book of Enoch that draw connections to the Mesopotamian literature from the same time period. And within the book of Enoch is preserved both the pagan Mesopotamian version and the Jewish correction. Therefore, the book of Enoch is a Jewish work. It's a Jewish literature from the time of Jesus. And from it, we get an original context for why Genesis 6 was placed in the Bible to begin with, which is incredible. And it's from this book that Second Temple Jews quoted and gave it a prominent role within canonical scripture, within the New Testament, to help us understand God's activity throughout history, even though the book itself isn't included in the canon of scripture. And this is just further confirmation that the book of Enoch, First Enoch, should be taken seriously. And I love how Dr. Heiser says that a book doesn't have to be inspired in order to be useful. The biblical writers read lots of things that helped them formulate and express the message that they were trying to portray under inspiration. Although the early church fathers didn't consider it the inspired word of God, we can clearly see that it was not only familiar to Second Temple Judaism, but it was also referenced by them in their writings, and that makes it relevant. 
It's a piece of literature that was written by very theologically faithful conservative Jews a couple hundred years before Jesus. And it offers great insight into how Jews were thinking about Messiah prior to Jesus. And even more incredibly, it brings into context where some of the New Testament writers got the concepts for certain topics like the Book of Life, the Lake of Fire, the Final Judgment, and much of the apocalyptic scenery that's found in the Book of Revelation. The Book of Enoch introduces them 200 years before Christ ever arrived before he ever discussed it himself, and before the disciples wrote about these topics in the New Testament. The book of Enoch introduces the apocalypse almost 300 years before John compiled the book of Revelation. That's powerful. Not to mention, it also offers insight into what was happening on the earth during the days of Noah, which is significant in and of itself, because Christ says in Matthew chapter 24, quote, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be with the coming of the Son of Man, unquote. And we can clearly see from the book of Enoch that the watchers were commingling with mankind during the days of Noah. And then there's a mysterious passage in Daniel that alludes to the same thing. When Daniel translates Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the final empire, he too references the return of someone or something who will, quote, mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave to one another, unquote, which is likely a reference to the fallen angels who once married the women of earth. He's potentially hinting at the return of the watchers, which brings us full circle to the history that I introduced at the beginning of today's episode. The ancient history that is currently being revived and slowly reintroduced to the world to prepare us for a disclosure event that will challenge the biblical narrative for those who've never read the book of Enoch and know the truth. These beings were never our creators, and it doesn't matter how much advanced technology or lying signs and wonders that they portray, they are deceivers, the very beings that Jesus forewarned would come in his name claiming to be him and who would deceive many. So, now that we've established that, I think it's time to let the Book of Enoch speak for itself. And I've debated on how best to do this. I originally scripted it where I read it myself and then commented as I went. But I really want the information to flow as smoothly as possible and not become confusing. So, I found an audio version of the Book of Enoch that was narrated by Christopher Glenn. He's a Christian broadcaster and the host of the Nightlight podcast. And something about his voice is just very soothing in my opinion, and he reads scripture in a way that seems easy enough to understand. So I think the best way to approach this is to play his narration of the passages, and then I'll comment as we go. In fact, for this first episode, I'd love your feedback as to whether you enjoy this method or whether you prefer that I simply offer commentary without quoting the passages directly from Enoch. 
Since they're short chapters, I thought we'd give it a try during this first episode and see how it goes. Now, I'm going to make a post in my Facebook group where people can comment with feedback. But if you aren't in the Facebook group, feel free to contact me through my website and let me know your thoughts. This will help me make adjustments for the remaining episodes pertaining to the Book of Enoch, especially since this Bible study style is new territory for me. So let's take a listen to chapter one, and then we'll come back and chat about it. Chapter one. The words of the blessing of Enoch, wherewith he blessed the elect and righteous who will be living in the day of tribulation, when the wicked and godless are to be removed. And he took up his parable and said, Enoch, a righteous man, whose eyes were opened by God, saw the vision of the Holy One in the heavens, which the angels showed me, and from them I heard everything, and from them I understood as I saw, but not for this generation, but for a remote one, which is for to come. Concerning the elect, I said, and took up my parable concerning them, the Holy Great One will come forth from his dwelling, and the Eternal God will tread upon the earth, even on Mount Sinai, and appear from his camp, and appear in the strength of his might from the heaven of heavens and all shall be smitten with fear, and the watchers shall quake, and great fear and trembling shall seize them unto the ends of the earth. And the high mountains shall be shaken, and the high hills shall be made low, and shall melt like wax before the flame. And the earth shall be wholly rent in sunder, and all that is upon the earth shall perish, and there shall be judgment upon all men. But with the righteous he will make peace, and will protect the elect, and mercy shall be upon them, and they shall all belong to God, and they shall all be prospered, and they shall all be blessed, and he will help them all, and light shall appear unto them, and he will make peace with them. And behold, he cometh with ten thousands of his holy ones, to execute judgment upon all, and to destroy all the ungodly, and to convict all flesh of all the works of their ungodliness which they have ungodly committed, and of all the hard things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So right off the bat, the book of Enoch issues a blessing for the righteous and the elect who will exist in the end times. One translation calls them the chosen and the just. Pastor J.R. Church draws an interesting connection to the chosen possibly being a reference to the Jews and the just possibly referencing future Christians. But if you remember, Christianity didn't exist at the time this was written because the author wrote it before Christ was ever born. But I found that connection a fascinating concept nonetheless. We're then told that Enoch's eyes were opened and he saw holy vision. Now, everything he witnessed was shown to him by angels. And he recognized that what he was seeing wasn't for his present generation, but rather was for a generation far off. We're also told that the information he received was interpreted in some way by these angels. He says from them he heard and was also able to understand. 
He goes on to say in verse 3 that he spoke with God concerning the elect, and then he describes God as coming forth from his dwelling, descending to earth and appearing on Mount Sinai from the, quote, heaven of heavens, which according to Dr. Michael Heiser denotes the highest heaven. In Jewish literature and cosmology, there were believed to be multiple levels of heaven, the highest of which housed the throne room of God Almighty. There's also an interesting connection here to Mount Sinai being the very location where the law was first given, exactly as he had done on the first Pentecost when Moses and the Israelites received the Torah, the law from God. So too will God return on Mount Sinai to issue judgment based on that law. And it's in this moment when Messiah returns and touches down onto Mount Sinai that Enoch witnesses the watchers trembling. In the book of Daniel, Daniel uses the term watcher in reference to angels. And although Enoch doesn't make a distinction between good angels or bad, we can assume that if they were trembling, they had something to fear. And this fear and terror also seized the earth. Enoch uses terminology like the mountains and high hills will be leveled and melt like wax before the flame. We see this same description in Psalms 97. Quote, fire goes before him and consumes his foes on every side. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord. Unquote. But Enoch goes on to clarify that to the righteous and the elect, God offers peace and provides protection. They will receive mercy instead of destruction. And Peter actually confirms this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, quote, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, unquote. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul reaffirms us that we are not in darkness. We are children of the light. And God has not appointed us for wrath, but to obtain salvation in Jesus Christ. And then the final passage in Enoch chapter 1, we're given the verse that was quoted directly by Jude, the brother of Jesus, in the New Testament. In Jude chapter 1, verse 14, it says, quote, Enoch, the seventh of Adam, prophesied, saying, Look, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to pass judgment on the wicked and to convict all flesh for every sinful and ungodly thing that they have done against him, unquote. Coincidentally, this same scene was witnessed by John in the book of Revelation, chapter 19, when he sees the armies of heaven following Christ on white horses clothed in white robes, and Christ is smiting the nations. Coincidentally, this happens during the closing chapter of the book of Revelation, and yet the book of Enoch opens with it. Now, chapters 2, 3, and 4 are only a paragraph or two each, and in them, Enoch shifts focus just a bit. Take a listen to this. Observe ye everything that takes place in the heaven, how they do not change their orbits, and the luminaries which are in the heaven, how they all rise and set in order, each in its season, and transgress not against their appointed order. Behold ye the earth, and give heed to the things which take place upon it, 
from first to last, how steadfast they are, how none of the things upon earth change, but all the works of God appear to you. Behold the summer and the winter, how the whole earth is filled with water, and clouds and dew and rain lie upon it. Observe and see how in the winter all the trees seem as though they had withered and shed all their leaves, except fourteen trees which do not lose their foliage, but retain the old foliage from two to three years till the new comes. And again observe ye the days of summer, how the sun is above the earth over against it, and you seek shade and shelter by reason of the heat of the sun. And the earth also burns with growing heat, and so you cannot tread on the earth or on a rock by reason of its heat. Observe ye how the trees cover themselves with green leaves and bear fruit. Wherefore, give ye heed and know with regard to all his works, and recognize how he that liveth for ever hath made them so. And all his works go on thus from year to year for ever, and all the tasks which they accomplish for him, and their tasks change not, but according as God hath ordained, so is it done. And behold how the sea and the rivers in like manner accomplish and change not their tasks from his commandments. So as you can see, after opening with a preview of the final outcome, Enoch immediately digresses to remind us that until that point in time arrives, everything in the universe will continue to orbit smoothly like clockwork. And he takes note of the sun and the moon and the stars and how consistently they remain on course. And from them we get seasons and we get weather patterns. And he takes note of the trees and how these seasons affect even the trees, except for a handful of what we might consider evergreen trees. Now, according to Dr. Michael Heiser, there is no known literature that matches or describes the 14 trees that Enoch mentions, which go unaffected by the seasons. But I think it's important to remember that Enoch is describing the pre-flood world in which he lived. So it's highly possible that all 14 may not have existed after the flood, and that's why they aren't found in any documentation. Enoch goes on to comment on the trees offering shade during the hot summer season and bearing fruit for us to enjoy. And he reminds us that these things have been provided for us by the love and the grace of our Creator. Now, Dr. Michael Heiser offers a slightly different perspective on this. And it's important to note here that Pastor J.R. Church tends to take more of a pastoral perspective on the book of Enoch. He claims that early Christian scholars actually believed that the book was originally written by Enoch and preserved aboard the ark. So he tends to take it more at face value and truly listen to what Enoch, as the original author, was saying. Whereas Dr. Michael Heiser is a scholar, and he believes that the book of Enoch was written by a second temple Jew at Qumran, possibly the Essenes, who was familiar with the historical or oral traditions of the story of Enoch. 
And this makes sense because it doesn't quite seem possible that an original manuscript survived a flood, 400 years of Egyptian slavery, 40 years in the wilderness, and the destruction of King Solomon's temple. Now, with that being said, the preservers of the Book of Enoch didn't simply make up a fictional piece. They were well aware of the historical account, which likely would have been passed down and practically memorized through oral tradition. And they documented it because it was clearly vitally important to them to preserve. So Dr. Heiser focuses more on the mindset of these authors. He points out literature patterns and connects consistent themes within the Book of Enoch that matches other religious literary references which also existed during that time period in order to prove that this was consistent with Jewish theology and it helps lend to its credibility. So they're slightly different perspectives which when combined gives us a very well-rounded view of the Book of Enoch. So as I was saying, Dr. Michael Heiser offers a slightly different perspective on this observance of nature and seasons offered in the book. He views this dramatic change in tone as the author trying to clarify how everything in the universe works according to the way it was created, that God set the path of everything and fixed the timing of its movement along these paths so that they don't change and transgress God's commands. In other words, Enoch is establishing that there's an order to the universe, and he's explaining the structure that has been in place, because in the next few passages, he's going to issue a scathing response to the wicked who have defied this order. And according to George W. E. Dickelsberg, who we introduced earlier, it's fairly common for Israelite texts to contrast between nature's steadfast obedience of God's commands and humanity's divergence from this divine order. And that's what we're seeing mirrored in First Enoch. So let's hear what Enoch has to say about these divergence. But ye, ye have not been steadfast nor done the commandments of the Lord. But ye have turned away and spoken proud and hard words with your impure mouths against his greatness. O oh, ye hard-hearted, ye shall find no peace. Therefore shall ye execrate your days, and the years of your life shall perish, and the years of your destruction shall be multiplied in eternal execration, and ye shall find no mercy. In those days ye shall make your names an eternal execration unto all the righteous. And by you shall all who curse, curse, and all the sinners and godless shall imprecate by you. And for you, the godless, there shall be a curse. And all the elect shall rejoice, and there shall be forgiveness of sins, and every mercy and peace and forbearance. There shall be salvation unto them a goodly light. And for all you sinners there shall be no salvation, and on you all shall abide a curse. But for the elect there shall be light and joy and peace, and they shall inherit the earth. And then there shall be bestowed upon the elect wisdom, and they shall all live and never again sin, either through ungodliness or through pride. But they who are wise shall be humble, and they shall not again transgress, nor shall they sin all the days of their life, nor shall they die 
of the divine anger or wrath, but they shall complete the number of the days of their life. And their lives shall be increased in peace, and the years of their joy shall be multiplied in eternal gladness and peace all the days of their life. So here we see that those who go against the order of God, Enoch says that the years of their life will be destroyed by their own doing, and they will receive no mercy or peace, which is a foreshadowing of a future chapter in Enoch, where the watchers are also denied mercy and peace as well. Both wicked humanity and the watchers ultimately share the same fate. And this is mimicked in the book of Revelation where those who take the mark of the beast and align themselves with the rebellion against God end up in the lake of fire with Satan and his angels. And it goes even deeper than that. In Enoch chapter 5 verse 6, Enoch mentions that in the day of judgment, the wicked will give away their peace for an everlasting curse. Now the audio clip called it an execration. And this is referencing the fact that they won't inherit the earth. He goes on to say that the righteous will forever reference them as cursed. And this is very similar to what's said in Isaiah chapter 65 verse 15, where God tells the unrighteous, quote, your name will be a curse word among my people, for the sovereign Lord will destroy you and will call his true servants by another name, unquote. And this is an interesting passage because throughout the Bible, when God transformed a person's life and placed them on a new path, he often gave them a new name that pointed to their new destiny. For example, in the Old Testament, Abram was given the name Abraham by God because he was destined to become the father of many nations. And in the New Testament, Simon's name was changed to Peter by Christ. So this passage in Enoch is consistent with the biblical narrative in the fact that it basically verifies that we will one day be given a new name because we will also have a new divine destiny. And this destiny is what Enoch talks about next. At the close of chapter 5, Enoch mentions that for the elect, there will not only be forgiveness of sins, mercy and peace, divine wisdom and salvation, but they shall inherit the earth, which is exactly what Christ said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, when he says that the meek shall inherit the earth. And if we go back to Isaiah 65 again, God says that he will bring forth descendants from Jacob and an heir for his mountains from Judah. Quote, my chosen shall inherit it and my servants will live there, unquote. And this is significant because according to Dr. Heiser, this inheritance seems to point to a reversal of an event that happened in Deuteronomy chapter 32. In Deuteronomy 32, we're told, quote, when the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, he divided mankind and set boundaries according to the number of the sons of God, unquote. 
And here we see the phrase sons of God, exactly like we saw in Genesis 6, which references angels. Essentially, when God divided the nations, he placed them under angelic principalities that governed them. We've mentioned in previous episodes that there were 70 nations that came from Noah. And even in occult circles, it's believed that there are 72 principalities that currently preside over the affairs of earth, the princes of the power of the air, if you will. So a little further down in Deuteronomy chapter 32, we're told that these angelic principalities, which God placed over the nations, became corrupt. And if you remember from episode 27, I touched a couple of times on the ongoing battle between Satan and mankind over physical land rights, dominion. In Genesis chapter 1, mankind was given dominion over the earth. And then something happened in the Garden of Eden. It appears as though Satan, in one way or another, deceived Adam and Eve into forfeiting their rights over to his control. And because he was thrown out of heaven, he manipulated his way into making earth his domain instead. And according to Jesse Shabatar, who we talked about in episode 27, Satan retains his claim to our domain by keeping us in a state of unrighteousness. And this is why he gets to go before the throne of Almighty God to accuse the brethren by claiming that we, in essence, allow him a rite of passage on earth through our unrighteousness. And this sheds a whole new light on the importance of what Enoch is saying in these final verses of chapter 5. We will be given a new name because we will have a new destiny when Christ returns. We will be given the earth as our inheritance. Our dominion will one day be restored to what it was before the fall of Adam and Eve. And we will replace the angels who were placed over us because we will rule the nations alongside Christ. And not only that, but we will be given the power to judge angels, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3. We will no longer be a little lower than the angels. And that's where we're going to end today. Next episode, we're going to pick up in Enoch chapter 6, and we're going to introduce the story of these watchers. It will probably end up being my favorite episode out of the entire study because it's the good part, and I hope you'll come back to hear it. And don't forget to leave me some feedback on the style of today's episode with regards to the Enoch study. Let me know if you enjoyed the audio that was inserted or if you prefer me to just offer the commentary. I will have a post available in my Facebook group for you to let me know your thoughts, but if you aren't in the Facebook group, you can contact me directly through my website, and this will help me structure the rest of the series. If you've enjoyed today's content, you can support the podcast by becoming a listener supporter or leaving me a review on whatever platform you're using. Reviews bring a ton of credibility for those who aren't familiar with my show. And if you're interested in accessing the script notes from today's episode, head over to the website and become a member. 
My notes for the episodes will typically be published before the episode even airs. So it's a great preview of material for my members before it's released to the general public through the podcast. Now, membership is $10 a month and your donation helps sustain future episodes and keeps me ad-free. You'll find all the details for this in the description of today's episode. And as always, make sure to hit that subscribe button if you haven't already and share this podcast with a friend. We'll see you next time.